If you would, turn in your copy of Scripture to Mark chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 30, uh, 28 through 44 this morning. And Jesus, at the end of Mark chapter 11, had traveled to Jerusalem, and he was in the temple square. The temple in Jerusalem is where faithful followers of God would gather to worship. Uh, not just the Jewish people, but also those who were God-fearers, those who were seeking after God. They would gather in the temple courts. Um, many of them, if they weren't faithful Jewish people, they were uh, consigned to the grand lobby. Uh, they could never enter into this place. They were stuck in the grand lobby. Some of y'all wish that y'all were still stuck in the grand lobby. Uh, but they were stuck in the grand lobby. They couldn't enter into this place. But regardless of whether they're outside the room or inside the room, they went to the temple to worship God. Big deal. And so Jesus began to teach them. And as he taught them, he found himself in debates with uh, the religious leaders. The religious leaders had heard Jesus teach. They knew him by reputation. Some of them had already had encounters with him, and uh, they were testing him. They were trying to trip him up. And so Jesus uh, teaches them. Uh, Throughout Mark chapter 12, he's teaching them about what it really means to have life with God. Beginning in verse 28, Jesus narrows the teaching even more specifically, and he teaches them and us the essence of worship. Worship's a big deal. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's a big deal. Uh, We set aside time every week to gather in this place to worship. As followers of Jesus, we set aside, should be setting aside time each day personally to worship. But can I tell you a couple of things? First of all, whether you're worshiping God or not, you're worshiping something or someone. Everybody worships something. So maybe the question that we need to ask is who or what are we worshiping? Worship can be defined as uh, the thing that we value the most, that gets the bulk, the majority, the primacy of our affection and devotion. What we value is what we love, and what we love is what we worship. Worship for followers of Jesus is supposed to be worshiping God. That's the supposed to. When we gather in our prayer closet or here in this worship gathering at 9, 10, 30, and uh, at 5 o'clock, uh, our, our uh, 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 Iglesia Bautista del Camino meeting right now, um, the, our Russian uh, brothers and sisters meeting right now, Every person that gathers with us for this moment, we're supposed to be worshiping God. And we should be doing this every single week. But can I tell you something else? Even for followers of Jesus, we get this wrong. This moment. 
By the way, just showing up and being in this place doesn't mean that you're worshiping God. It means that you've shown up and you're sitting in a seat. As followers of Jesus, we get worship wrong. We get worship wrong because we turn on its head what worship as a follower of Jesus is supposed to be. You see, worship as a follower of Jesus is supposed to be all about God, not anything at all about me. And yet so often when we gather in this place, we define the meaningfulness or the value of this setting by how it touches our hearts. Now, make no mistake, I'm not diminishing or demeaning the fact that when you get here and when I get here, I want to be touched in the heart. I want to be moved. I do. I'm I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm saying it's just not even in the top 10 list of what should be happening in this place. When Jesus was gathered with the people out in the temple courts and and, and they were gathering to worship, he needed to teach them that it wasn't about them and it wasn't about others. It was supremely about God and adoring him, getting worship right. The other thing is, we define the value or the meaningfulness of worship by our own personal preferences. When I was a teenager, I loved country music. Not that silly stuff that they play today. Real country music. I mean, Merle Haggard and Waylon Jennings and David Allen Coe, don't listen to him ever, ever. Johnny Cash. John Anderson, come on. That's country. And outside of like Chris Stapleton, I, I can't listen to country music. Not that I do. But, but I love, that, I love that, that genre of music. But I don't like the music that's played today. But even if I listen to the music that's played today, the themes are the same. The themes that, that country music sings about today, the same themes that they sang about uh, back when I was a teenager in the 80s, it's, it's uh, trauma and tragedy and broken hearts and beer. It's country music. With God thrown in somewhere. And so many of us get in this room and we say, if we would just sing the songs that we sang back when I was a teenager, this worship would be meaningful. Or we get here and say, I can't believe they're singing such outdated songs. Why don't they sing the songs of my generation? And then it would be meaningful. If I could take a step down just for a second. If that's your definition of worship, you are missing it. If it is all about what entertains you, what makes you feel good, you are missing it. Worship is not about you, and it's not about me. It never has been. Unless, unless I'm worshiping myself. And maybe, maybe that's part of our problem. We define the essence of worship about me, what it does for me what I like about it, what I don't like about it. 
and we think, man, if we would just worship. Well, Jesus is saying as well, if we would just worship. But his definition of worship, which I think we can all agree, his definition of worship is the only real definition of worship that matters, not yours, not mine, but his. And so when he gets to the temple courts and he's trying to educate and teach and transform people in their view of what God says is worship, he begins to recite the favorite, most common hymn of worship for that generation. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that Jesus had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment? Verse 29, so Jesus answered him, and he began to quote the hymn. The first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to Jesus, well said, teacher, you've spoken truth. For there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, Jesus said to the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to question Jesus. And Jesus, still in the temple, Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies my footstool. Therefore, David himself calls the Messiah Lord. How is the Messiah then David's son? And the common people heard him gladly. Verse 38. Then Jesus said to them in his, teaching, uh, in his teaching, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at the feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation." And Jesus sat opposite the treasury, and he saw how the people put money into the treasury and how many uh, who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which makes a quadrants. And he called his disciples together around himself, and he said, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow, who has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury, uh, for they all put in out of their abundance, but she put in out of her poverty all that she had, her whole livelihood. Now you look at these verses, and uh, I take all of these verses as one single whole about Jesus talking about our relationship with God, and in essence, talking to us about worship. When we get together, or when we're in the prayer closet, our worship needs to reflect what Jesus teaches in Mark 12, 28 through 44. 
The essence of worship is built around this great commandment that, that Jesus gives us. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, this is the hymn, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. It's called the Shema. And what Jesus was doing, he was taking a familiar hymn that church-going folks sang, and then he was teaching about what it means to really worship God. The essence of worship, the meaning of worship, the aroma of worship, true worship of God flows out of an all-consuming love for God. That's what worship looks like. To say that we worship God is not to say, I love the music. To say that we worship God is not to say, I love the community. To worship God is not supremely to say, I, I, love, I love how I feel when I get here. No, to worship God, the worship of God flows out of an all-consuming love for God. And if we don't get this right, we miss everything else. We must love God supremely. And that's what defines whether worship is meaningful. It's not about how we feel at all. It's about us expressing to God his worth and his value and our devotion and loyalty to him. That's worship. When we get in this place and we get together in this gathering or when we go to our prayer closet every day, the goal is not to feel good. The goal is to express love to a living God who has rescued us out of sin's embrace. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. And without dividing those pieces and compartmentalizing our life, Jesus was saying, if you're going to worship God, you got to love him with all that you are. Every piece and particle of your being, every, um, every activity, every moment at work, at home, at play, at school, you must love God. Now, loving God is not just some sentimental kind of sudsy little moment in our life. Loving God is an activity of absolute devotion and obedience to him. The apostle Paul said it a little bit differently, but it means the same thing. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul said, I beg you, therefore, brethren, and cistern, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service of worship. If we're going to worship God, it means that we give him all that we are. That's what loving him looks like. But it's hard to love God because we have so many other affections. Uh, maybe the first and primary affection that we have to battle in worshiping God and loving God is our love and affection for ourselves. We love ourselves. We love to love ourselves. We have an affection for ourselves that rivals all others. And some people say that's a good thing, but God doesn't. 
Our greatest love has to be God. And that's sometimes how our, we get our worship wrong. We have these other affections. I have a granddaughter. Her name is Nora. Nora turns three in April, but she's going to have a baby sister in March. Another grandbaby. Another granddaughter. For those of you who don't know, I have four daughters. I have one granddaughter. I have two granddaughters. My son-in-law is here on the front row. Sorry, Brady. Good man. Good man. Um, <laughs> anyway, I have a granddaughter. Her name is Nora. And Nora, when she was uh, uh, smaller, before she could walk or anything like that, uh, they would, uh, her mom and dad and, uh, would put her in a sleep sack. And she would sleep in a sleep sack. And if you don't know, it's a onesie. It's like a cocoon. You put the, 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 the baby in it and you zip it up all the way and they, you know, they're there, right? And it's a sleep sack. There came a point where Nora outgrew the sleep sack, but she loves the sleep sack. And even though she didn't wear it when she took a nap or went to bed at night, she wanted it, and she wanted to sleep with it. Not only sleep with it, she wants it when she's walking around the house. She loves that sleep sack. She'll say, where's my sleep sack? And we run around the house trying to find the sleep sack. That is an affection she has, and it is a consuming affection. As followers of Jesus, as sons and daughters of the living God, we have our own little sleep sack. It's not a bad thing. It's just it becomes the most important thing in our life. And whatever that sleep sack is for you, it derails your worship of God. One of the reasons we get worship wrong is we fail to understand that to worship means that we love God most of all. First and most. Is that the expression of your everyday life? Is that what it looks like when you gather here? Again, if we love God most of all, we're not worried about what we're feeling. We're worried about what He's feeling. We're not worried about what the song means to me. We're worried about what the song means to Him. We're not worried about the tone or the tune. We're worried about the heartbeat of the living God. Does he feel my love in this moment? So how do we awaken worship? I think Jesus gives us clues here. The, the big picture is if we're going to worship God, we've got to love him first and for, foremost. So how do we awaken worship that looks like this supreme and, and absolute devotion of our heart, mind, body, and soul? How do we awaken that? 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. Listen to what, G, uh, what John wrote. He said... I'm trying to remember what he said. I guess I'm going to have to read it, not quote it. But that's okay. Oh, we love him. It's the simplest verse. We love him because he first loved us. 
Now, we love God because he is holy and majestic and mighty and powerful. I think what John is writing, and we'll look at verses 9 through 11 in a minute of 1 John 4, but, but what, what John is saying is we need to awaken love for God. How do we awaken love for God? We love him because he first loved us. So if, if I want to worship God in spirit and in truth, if I want to love God supremely, how do I get there with all these competing affections, with all these different affections, all these little sleep sacks that I want to hold on to? How can I make sure that love for God outstretches love for self? Love for God outstretches love for habits or intentions or desires or songs or anything. Love for God is most supreme. How do I get there? Well, we awaken worship for God in our hearts when we see God's love for us. When we, when we set our gaze upon God's love for us. 1 John four nineteen. we love him because he first loved us. The way we can love God is when we soak our soul in his love for you and me. Before you get in this room, before you race to get coffee, before you have chatterbox with your buddies and gossip around the, the, the coffee counter or water cooler or the donut box, before any of that happens, when you come to this place, I would contend that the most important thing that you and I can do is to soak our soul in how God has loved us. To think, to focus. Oh, he has loved me. How has he loved me? 1 John 4, verses 9 through 11. And this is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the payment price for our sin. How do we know love? By how God has loved us. And how has God loved us? He sent Jesus to die for sinners like you and me, to pay the penalty that our sin demanded and deserved. That in his great grace and because of his amazing mercy, he sends Jesus to rescue us out of the plight of our sin, out of the guilt of our iniquity, out of the cell of our shame, to break us out of death and bring us into life, not because of anything that we had done to deserve it, but all because of what he calls love. Friends, when we soak our soul in the amazing, miraculous, powerful, life-changing, life-giving love of God, it awakens in us worship for God. If we're going to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we've got to set our gaze upon the giver of that love. Name Jesus. Oh, my goodness, friends. I, I'm, I'm, I'm so, I'm so uh, concerned about the church. I'm so concerned about myself when all I can think about is me, myself, and mine. And I fail to consider all that God has done for me. And then I wonder why I have a hard time worshiping God. It's because we put ourselves as the centerpiece of worship. And it's never meant to be that way. 
So let's awaken worship for God by focusing, seeing His great love for us. We love Him because He first loved us. And secondly, we awaken worship for God by loving others sacrificially. You might say, well, how does that work? Well, it's in the text, number one. The first and greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second likened to it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, a couple of things about loving your neighbor as yourself. First, the command is to love your neighbor, not to love yourself. We live in a culture and a time where everybody says the most important thing you can do is love yourself. That's not at all what this verse says. The command is to love others in a way that you would want to be loved as yourself. To love others in the way that God has loved you. The command is to love others. Now, how does that fit into worship? Well, when we think about worshiping God, it is loving Him. We love God when we obey His commandments. I don't want to rip loving others out of the context of relationship. That's important. But the primary relationship that we're concerned about is our relationship with God. To love God means that I'm going to love others. Love my neighbor. In Luke, when Jesus gave this command to love your neighbor as yourself... Luke records Jesus reciting the Good Samaritan. Because the lawyer, the scribe, said, well, who then is my neighbor? And so Jesus said, well, let me tell you a story about a, a, a guy, a guy that went um, uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves, got beat up, laid at the side of the road. Uh, uh, groups of religious people passed by, saw the man beaten and laying on the side of the road. But these religious people, the ones that should have been heroes in the story, they just left. They didn't want to. They didn't want to take the time. They didn't want to take uh, the the energy, the struggle. They just left him laying on the side of the road. But a Samaritan who was never intended to be a hero of any Jewish story, the Samaritan comes along and he sees the man and he stops and he. Uh, tends to the man, he, he, he helps the man, puts the man on a donkey, takes the man to the, uh, to the emergency room, says to the emergency room, I'm going to pay his bill, whatever other bills he incurs, I'll take care of it. Um, and, and Jesus said, now that's what loving your neighbor looks like. That's the command. We are to love others. Now, that fits into worship when we, uh, in corporate worship, when we get in here and we're thinking, uh, here's how we get worship wrong. We get worship wrong because we say, I'm the most important person in the room. Then God is important. Then others can be important. And so many of us, that's how we approach worship. How does it affect me? What am I saying? And how does God think uh, about it? And then what do others think? But when Jesus gives this instruction about worship, he said, no, 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 no. That's not how it goes. Worship is first and foremost God. Then others. Then you can think about yourself. If we're going to worship right, if we're going to awaken worship in us, we want to obey God's commands because obeying God's commands is worshiping God. 
but also understanding in the corporate setting, I'm concerned more about how Susie over here is in her relationship with God than I am about how that song made me feel. How many of us walk into this room and we're more concerned about how a song makes us feel than we do are concerned about Susie over here and her relationship with God? See, we've, we've got to take this stuff seriously. If we're going to get worship right, then we need to love God supremely, which means we're going to love others sacrificially. Again, 1 John 4, 9 through 11. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son to be the payment price for our sin. Verse 11. Brethren and sistren, if God has loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. John 13, Jesus said, by this, the world is going to know that you're my followers by your love one for another. If we don't understand that loving others sacrificially is part and parcel of worshiping God, then we misunderstand what worship is. We love God supremely. We love others sacrificially. We awaken worship of God when we, uh, when we focus on his love for us, when we uh, love others sacrificially. Third, when we submit to Jesus. Now, Jesus is still in the temple, and he's still teaching about worship. Uh, and in verse 35, uh, Jesus uh, talks to the people. He's, he's instructing the the churchgoers about worship. And he says, um, how is it that the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? So, um, and this comes from uh, the, uh, the religious leaders of the day. They were looking for the Messiah and Jesus is the Messiah, right? Not everybody believed that, but Jesus is the Messiah. And they taught that the Messiah was going to be the son of David, rightly so. Jesus is the son of David. He's of the lineage of David himself. But Jesus then turns it a little bit more and he says, now, David, you're a hero, but don't you understand that scripture itself, the very words of David himself point to not David being the hero, but Jesus, the Messiah is the hero. And he quotes Psalm 110, uh, the Lord said it to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. David himself, verse 37, David himself calls the Messiah Lord. And he's saying that Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah and I am David's Lord. I'm his boss. I am the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And while that is true of David, it's also true of you and me. And if we're going to get our worship right, if we are going to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbor as ourselves, we need to understand that whether we're in this room or in our own prayer closet every day, we must submit to Jesus as our Lord. That means it's not just fine, fancy words. It means that we determine that what Jesus says in his word, Genesis to Revelation, we will do what Jesus says. So many of us wonder why it is we lack 
um, uh, power in worship or meaning of worship. It, it just seems so dead and empty. Could it not be that the reason worship is dead and empty to you is because you are not submitting to Jesus? Let's just keep it simple. If we're going to love God with all our heart, it means that we are going to surrender our all to Jesus. It is Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life that I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I live, I will die for Jesus. I submit to him. I submit my wants, I submit my desires, I submit my relationships, I submit my work, I submit my play, I submit every aspect of every single day to Jesus. If we want to awaken worship, and we do, everybody's built to worship. You want to awaken worship of God in your heart? You must submit to Jesus. And then finally, not only submit to Jesus, but we need to awaken worship of God in our hearts by dismissing, dismantling, derailing, um, uh, removing, uh, rejecting selfish motives. I don't know about you. Can I just talk honest for a second? I mean, I always try to talk honest, but sometimes it feels like I'm more preaching than honesty. You know what I'm saying? Get out of the preacher mode. Take another step down. The, the reality is, the greatest enemy of my worshiping God, it's not the music. Let me say it again. Because some of you have decided that the music is the greatest enemy for your personal worship. The music is not the problem. The greatest enemy for me worshiping the living God is me. It's me. I have selfish motives. And Jesus brings this out by comparing uh, the scribes to a widow. And, and you need to understand that it is a comparison between the scribes and a widow. In the context of how, how Jesus portrayed this, he's saying, first, beware of the scribes. Now, why do you need to beware of the scribes? The scribes were the religious people. These are the, the, the suit coat people, right? They go around in flashy robes and they want to be seen they want to be heard. They're the ones who are standing on the, on the platform expounding uh, eloquently. They're the ones who have these long, uh, ornate prayers. And if anybody should be getting worship right, it's these scribes. But then Jesus gives the kicker. He says, they're doing it all in pretense. They want to be seen. They're trying to feed their ego. They're trying to make a big deal of themselves so that they feel good about themselves. But it's not worship. It's coming to be seen. It's coming to be heard. It's not about God. It's about them. And that's the problem. Don't be like the scribe. that gets into worship, whether it's in your prayer closet or in the corporate room, you get in to worship and you think, 
Now, how's this going to make me feel? Or how's this going to make me look? What am I going to get out of it? When that is your primary motive, it's a selfish motive, and worship will not be meaningful because you or I have gotten in the way. But then you have the widow, this wonderful woman who walks up to the 13, one of the 13 receptacles. Uh, you think we do giving, uh, we, we're giving light when it comes to how they did it in the temple. In the temple uh, in Jerusalem, they had 13 big old uh, 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 metal buckets all lined up. Uh, and you would go up to one of those metal buckets and you would drop your money in. Now, the money of that age made clanging sounds, not floating sounds. And they would drop their money in. And Jesus said that there were people who would come and they would give a lot. Now, here's the way it looks. You've collected uh, pennies for uh, two or ten years and it's in a big, a big jar. And so you come and in this metal container, you pour all that money. That, that's, the, that's the image. You give a lot of money and everybody sees and everybody hears. And they think, wow, what a holy person that is. And then you have this little widow. And all she has are two little pennies. And she goes up and she drops those two pennies into that metal container. It doesn't even make a clink. But Jesus sees. And he calls his disciples around him. And he, he's already said, beware of the scribes. But then he says, be like that widow. She gave everything. That's worship. So the question then comes to you and to me. Are we more like the scribe who wants to be seen or heard or get, get stuff for self? Or are we more like the widow who just wants to give everything in love to God? As, as we close this thing out, I, I just, you know, there, I don't listen to a lot of music. I, I just don't. Um, um, but when I'm in my prayer closet, there are a couple of songs that I, I have on repeat. I usually don't play them. I just sing them to myself or, or think about them or sometimes I'll play them. Oh, one of the songs is a, a newer song and, and it's, again, it's just one of those songs that hits me every time I hear it. Um, I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. All my days, all my days, I've been held in your hand. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head, I'm going to sing of the goodness of God. All my life, you have been faithful. All my life, you've been so, so good. With every breath that I'm able, I'm going to sing of the goodness of God. Just sets my focus on Him. 
It, it, it helps me see again what he's done for me. And there's a hymn that also is on repeat. There's passages that I look at, Ephesians 2 and Romans 8, Romans 12. Those are passages that just uh, I'm enamored by and, and, and lean into. But there's also a hymn, a hymn by Wesley. And the hymn is, And Can It Be? Some of y'all may know this. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain. For me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, wouldst die for me? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Would you bow your heads with me? O God in heaven, May we demonstrate our love for you. Our absolute, undiluted love for you. As we focus on all you have done for us in Christ Jesus. Oh God, may we worship you with our whole heart. May we love you with all that we are. Oh God, unveil again your wondrous, amazing, miraculous, life-changing, life-giving love that we may worship you Now, God, may we, your people, sons and daughters in your family, may we worship you with this all-consuming love. Oh, God, may we, your people, gathered here by your Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ may we worship you with our whole heart oh God may we who have gathered here sons and daughters in your family worship you with this all-consuming love.